Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> have a chance to talk to you. I'm surprised you have time to sleep and eat. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll do it during the interview, which will be great. So I have to ask my first question. I know that you are a connoisseur of David Merrick stories. Um, do you have a, a favorite Merrick story that you'd like to share with us? I absolutely um, have a favorite uh, Merrick story. Um, it is told, and I may be, if people want to find the source, um, Harvey Sabinson, who was for many years Merrick's press agent, um, and later when I knew him, much later, uh, uh, was the uh, head of the New York uh, Theater League, the Broadway Theater League, and now is retired, wrote a memoir called, uh, I think it was called Darling, You Were Wonderful. Anyway, this may be a slightly garbled version, but it's absolutely priceless. Of course, it involved uh, Subways Over Sleeping, uh-huh. um, which was... Um, I, alas, never saw. I was uh, about 11, 10 or 11, 12 years old when this happened. But it's famous to most people because of a prank that Merrick did, which was uh, in the days of seven New York daily newspapers, he had been waiting to find a show uh, for which he could hire essentially seven people with the same names as the, as the New York drama critics and take a fake quote ad with all of them raving the show. And he couldn't, he was stymied for years because the most important drama critic of that day, Brooks Atkinson uh, at the New York Times had a one of a kind name. He could never find a Brooks Atkinson. <laughs> but, but, but when Atkinson retired, he um, he fa- he was succeeded by a critic named Howard Taubman, and so the roster was complete. And Merrick, uh, and this is a, a, this has been much told, uh, found uh, the seven people, took them out to a steak dinner, uh, to a preview of Subways for Sleeping, had them sign on to a quote ad with quotes like makes my fair lady look like junk you know <laughs> not merely the best musical of the season the best musical of the century and it, it was a it was a julie stein a betty Compton adolf green lesser known lesser show with sydney chaplin and carol Lawrence and phyllis newman um and um it was mediocre and he placed the ad uh, to run the morning after the opening in the Times and the Herald Tribune. The Times c- caught the ad and yanked it before the first edition. The Tribune didn't. 
It ran for one edition, which was all he needed. Then they pulled it when they discovered they were, it was a hoax. It made front pages all over the world, and this mediocre show, which got lousy reviews, <laughs> ran for a season and almost made uh, uh, its money back. Uh, however, that's not the story. The less famous story is about the same show. It tried out in uh, 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 Philadelphia, uh, the Forest Theater in Philadelphia. It got terrible reviews. Uh, Sabinson, as Merrick's press agent, was dispatched to Boston. The next stop was going to be the Colonial Theater in Boston to um, drum up feature coverage in the newspapers for it. And Sabinson goes to Boston, comes back to Philadelphia, and said, I placed a piece. But by the way, the first string critic of the Boston Globe isn't covering the show. And uh, uh, Merrick said, what do you mean? Are we sending a second stringer, Kevin Kelly, would later become the chief critic there. Uh, and clearly, Merrick says, well, clearly he heard the reviews in Philadelphia, and that's why he's covering something else instead, more important than this. He said, I've got an idea, and the idea was we will ban this second stringer, Kevin Kelly, from the opening in, in Boston and get publicity. And so a couple of weeks pass. They go up to uh, Boston. It's a snowy night. And Kevin Kelly, having been told that he was being barred from the theater, turns up at the theater and this ritual before local news and local TV, he's turned away into the night in the snow by Merrick. Says, I, and they say, why, uh, why won't, press says, why won't uh, uh, you let, let him cover the show? He said, because he's a second stringer and he's an idiot. <laughs> uh, the, the next morning, so the show opens without Kevin Kelly. The next morning, uh, Merrick is in his suite at the Ritz in Boston. Sabinson walks in with the papers and said, David, you're a genius. Um, the, you're on the front page of the Boston Globe, all about how you barred Kevin Kelly from the theater, and there's a sidebar by Kevin Kelly, what it was like to be barred by David Merrick. And he said, but David, sit down. The, the best is yet to come. You go inside to the jump, and there's a review of Subways Over Sleeping by Kevin Kelly. And Merrick says, what do you mean? He said, well, he wrote an introduction saying, knowing he was going to be banned, he bought a ticket uh, to the last performance in Philadelphia and reviewed it on the basis of that. And he says, and, and Sabin says, and David, it is a rave. <laughs> to, which Merrick, to which Merrick says, didn't I say he was an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! That's a great story. I've not heard that. That's a great story. Yeah, that, that yeah, it's one of the. Uh, there's so many great stories. I, you know, I alas, my own career as a drama critic barely intersected with Merrick's. I, re I reviewed his last real show, Forty Second Street, yeah. at the beginning of my career, but that was it. Essentially, I had some innings with him, but he was a soon a stroke victim and, and out of the picture. Right, right, right. Have you ever thought about writing a book on Merrick? Mm -mm. I, I, um, there's a, there's a not very good biography that was done of him. Um, no, I, I just feel, I don't, first of all, I don't, I don't really want to, I, I, I wouldn't want to write a biography of anyone. I also don't think there's the material to sustain. Yeah. I think he's absolutely fascinating. But the one obituary um, I wrote for the Times the entire time I was there was of Merrick. It was oh. his front page obituary. Huh. Oh. I, Poor, that story isn't in it, but 
tons of other stories are. I really poured my heart and soul into it mm. um, with a fondness. I mean, I didn't know him. I met him, but but a, a sort of a appreciation for what he represented. It's long gone, yeah. even then, in the theater. And I'm sure you can just find it in the Times archive if you search for my name and David Merrick and obituary. It was a front page. It was quite a lengthy obituary. It was a mini biography of him. Right. Great. Uh, then we will we will post that for our listeners. I have to ask you, who was Clayton Coots? Clayton Coots um, was a guy I met. Uh, a little bit of background, and I, sh- and I should say that much of this story I've told both in my memoir Ghostlight and in a subsequent piece about Clayton that I wrote for a New York magazine a few years ago. Um, Clayton, when I was a teenager growing up in D.C., Washington was a huge tryout town in the days when there really were routinely Broadway tryouts, you know, something that barely exists now because uh, uh, it was essentially replaced by previews in New York when it became too expensive to do it. Um, and when shows became also too heavy to just jump from city to city. So Washington was on the circuit that included Philadelphia, Boston, and New Haven in particular. And um, I uh, went there so many times as an adolescent buying standing room and uh, second balcony seats to see shows that were trying out that um, I'm touring in some cases, the manager took pity on me and became and, and gave me a job as a ticket taker on Saturday matinees, which I did through high school, essentially, before going off to college. And it was an incredible period because it was the period of, you know, I saw shows try out like Fiddler and The Odd Couple and Hello, Dolly, and, you know, also big flops like Irving Berlin's Mr. President. Oh, yeah. Strange things like Peter Brooks, the physicist, all of that came through Washington. Part of my job, besides taking tickets, was in the days of hard tickets, pre-computer, sorting them by price range and, and sitting in in a back office behind the uh, orchestra floor of the theater, what was called the count, where essentially the manager of the theater and the, ma- the company manager of the touring production would 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 do the receipts of the day and, and settle, uh, you know, who, who was owed what. The company managers were, by and large, um, uh, Damon Runyon types, old theater types, wonderful characters who toured for years. But occasionally there'd be someone who was younger, and Clayton Coots was one, and he um, uh, befriended me. Uh, I, I got to, actually I got to know a number of them, but I particularly, uh, really, we really hit it off. He was probably 15 years older than I was. Um, and... Um, through a fluke, I saw him. He came through with a, with the touring company of the first national company of Barefoot in the Park with mm. with I remember with Myrna Loy. I remember playing the mother. Oh wow! Uh, oh, yeah. And and um, uh, he was about to go and sit down for a year in Chicago with the first national company of the Odd Couple uh, under the same management, obviously. Um, and I was going to Chicago the summer after my junior year to go into a journalism summer program for high school students at Northwestern. I sort of had a girlfriend that came out of that, that program who actually lived in Chicago. And I was able to keep visiting her during my senior year of high school because my stepfather was an airline lawyer and I could get free plane tickets. <laughs> and so 
uh, Clayton was there. He said, you know, look me up. And um, my girlfriend and I spent a lot of time with him. And uh, often we'd go out to dinner with him when I was in town. We'd uh, he'd, he'd do the he'd do the count at the, the Blackstone Theater where the Odd Couple was. With a, it was a company with uh, Richard Benjamin and Dan Daly. And um, and then he'd take uh, my friend and I out to dinner. And I'd often stay with him because. Her mother was, uh, she was a single mother and disapproving of the boyfriend, even in those sort <laughs> yes, of simpler yes. times, stay, staying in a close quarters in an apartment in the north side of Chicago. So he remained, uh, and, I, and I, I remained friends with him and uh, had a correspondence with him until, until sort of the tail end of college. And then sort of we drifted away from each other. He drifted out of the theater um, and... Uh, uh, ultimately, I just I would learn after the fact that he had died at a fairly young age. Mm. Mm. Uh, but he was a very influential influential figure on in me, not so much even about the theater, but about life. Although I learned a lot, I felt the theater was very glamorous. He didn't really, mm. um, but I but I he, I didn't believe him, and you know, <laughs> I, saw, I saw a lot of the theater from the inside through his eyes, mm. and he was just a kind of charming Pied Piper guy very, of, a, of a guy very very lovely very interesting very smart very witty uh, from a sort of show business uh, lineage his father who was then still alive who I never met was a, a songwriter named J. Fred Coots who had made a lot of money writing um, in the 20s particularly uh, he wrote uh, uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town and oh, uh, You oh, Go yeah. to My Head among other uh, standards and so he he was sort of a I was sort of an unhappy teenager I had problems in my family he became kind of a surrogate parent to me and just made me you know love the theater that much more that I could know someone like him I thought was extremely glamorous yeah. and great yeah yeah thank you for sharing that one of the things we love to do on this show is celebrate mentors um and it sounds like so thank you for that when did you realize that being a critic was a viable option for you in terms of a career path i really it's it's weird because when you when i look back on of course it's not really a viable career path for anybody (laughs) particularly now with what's happened in journalism it's nothing you really aspire to do. Yeah. And um, it, in my case, um, I, I did a lot of it in college for the school paper, right. the Harvard Crimson, and it was, and again, reviewing shows that were trying out. My senior year, um, Sondheim's Follies tried out at the, again at the Colonial in Boston, and I reviewed it um, for the you know for the school paper. Incredibly, uh, a copy of it made its way to Follies, which is, I don't know how that happened, actually, because it wasn't something you could buy in the newsstands in Boston at all. I mean, it was something, you know, distributed in Cambridge. But it led to Sondheim writing me a letter in the days of letters at the Crimson um, that he was taken with my review, felt the uh, show had gotten mediocre reviews and and worse in Boston, including from the aforementioned Kevin Kelly. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I'll just be this 10 years later, um, after somebody's oversleeping. Right. And uh, I guess he didn't like it as much as somebody's oversleeping. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, 
I, I, I love the show. I, I written about it, I guess with a lot of passion. And so I got this letter from Sondheim asking to meet me. So I wow. had a drink with him in Boston. And of course I was out of my mind oh. that I was, you know, it was an incredibly nice thing of him to do. He reached out to I you. I worshiped yeah. him. Um, and, um, it, it gave me, I mean, feel God, well, maybe I actually know something about this. Um, but I didn't think I would be able to make a living at it. And even at the time on the Crimson, other people, other students, friends of mine on the paper saying, if you want to be a critic, you better start writing about movies because there's no interest in theater or theater criticism. And it was true. It was a declining industry mm-hmm. at that time. And, and it wasn't something you do in any case, it sort of, but it sort of planted the idea in my head that maybe I could do something with it. That said, I sold my first piece that summer. It was a, uh, 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 to Esquire. It had nothing to do with the theater. It was a piece about, uh, I, I got an exclusive interview with Dan Ellsberg, who had just released the Pentagon Papers. I wrote a long profile of him for Esquire. Uh, and then I began a career um, that involved everything from sort of muckraking, journalism, in Virginia to writing film criticism, but mainly editing at a political magazine in New York, which is what brought me to New York. And I didn't have a work as a critic professionally for about another, I don't know, four or five years. And I was a film critic at the at the New York Post Post. and a film and television critic at time. I didn't write a theater review professionally um, until I was hired by the Times in 1980. So it was nine years after I'd written that review of Follies. Oh, wow. wow. That, that's a long period. Right. Yeah. And so, um, but but certainly that that was inc- a huge encouragement to me, um, but it had no direct effect on my career. Uh, a very generic question, but what is the function of a critic? What do you feel that a, a critic should accomplish after a reader has finished reading the review? My, I mean, everyone may have a different idea about this. Mm-hmm. My idea was very simple. It came entirely out of being a theater nut as a child. Growing up, not in New York, um, wanting to know everything about the theater. And while I did was able to see a lot of shows as a kid in Washington, both touring and trying out, um, I didn't see most shows that I wanted to see in New York. Cause, you know, it was, it was pre-Kennedy Center, Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was just one touring house and arena stage, which at that time did almost entirely classics, not new plays. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, what I loved about the critics that I discovered young, as a young reader, even, you know, I would say beginning at around 10 years old, 9 or 10 years old, were those that could um, make me see what I was missing, mm-hmm. could bring, uh, with, with, with really good writing and some wit, bring to, bring to life for me in a way beyond photographs or Herschel drawings or even original cast albums or play scripts, what it was like to be in the theater on a particular night and see that performance. And and two critics in particular really did that for me. Um, one was Walter Kerr, who was then with the Herald Tribune, and the other was uh, Kenneth Tynan, who spent a year writing for The New Yorker. He was a British critic, obviously, mm-hmm. but it was a year that happened to coincide with when I was falling in love 
the theater was like the like the 59 1960 61 area and i loved reading them and it it just gave me it gave me that uh and as a result that sort of became what i aspired to do as a critic to give because let's face it may, Many New York Times readers, as a national paper, were, were people like me. They were stranded elsewhere in the country where yeah. they didn't have access to every show that I was seeing, and I and I and I felt that was a, uh, the most important thing. And the opinion expressed in the review was secondary. And I feel that you know no one agrees with a critic all the time. There'd be something wrong with you if you did. You get to know <laughs> a critic. You know, weak, what you consider yeah. the, the critic's strengths and weak spots. You know, you might agree with this critic about performances or, you, or, or drama, but you might not agree with him or her about musicals or comedy or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and indeed, when I look back, my own taste and what I like in the theater, um, I would say that neither Tynan nor Kerr were as close to it as say Brooks Atkinson, mm -hmm. but Atkinson was to me a much more pedestrian writer and I read him, but it just didn't thrill me the way um, their pieces did. And so, um, so to me it was about that, it was about trying to write and create that sensation the best I could. And and also in, in the terms of analysis, I, I always, started with a gut reaction to whatever I saw. So if I was moved or if I was bored or I was angered or I was made to laugh or to cry, I'd always start with that and almost like solving a mystery about myself and about the play, mm. try to figure out how I got to that reaction from what I saw and uh, in the theater that night. So that's what I regarded as the assignment. Uh, because you were such a uh, theater buff growing up, if you could go back in, you know, the good old time machine and attend a performance that you were not able to attend, what would it be? I I would have loved, I mean, I can't say a single performance. I think that's probably way too hypothetical, but I was actually, um, I actually have a conversation with one of, one of my sons uh, just this weekend, hmm. sort of about this issue. He's, he's someone who's a, who writes for show business, not in the theater. But, right. Uh, unfortunately for him, saw a lot of bad theaters in childhood. <laughs> but, but um, um, I, uh, uh, I really am taken by the period that I missed. Uh, the the post-war period, I would have loved mm. yep. to have been alive and going to um, the streetcar, a salesman, a South Pacific, uh, and oh, yeah. uh, Iceman Cometh, they all happened within a few years of each other after World War II. Yeah. But yeah. I, um, it's also a great period to be in New York City if you wanted to time travel by all accounts. Right. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, podcast listeners, are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway, and we hope that you make it your artistic home too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. In terms of writing a review, is there anything that should be off limits for the critic to include in the review, Uh, such as if an actor was fired before the production was reviewed or the fact that it might have taken, you know, 30 workshops for the show to actually get on stage? Is there anything that you feel is off limits in a review? I really feel a lot of that background is irrelevant. Mm. I I really do. And I feel um, I I made a point, you know, not that. I'm necessarily correct, but I made a point of not, it was easier pre-internet, of course, not knowing that stuff before a show opened. I wouldn't read Arts and Leisure advanced pieces about a show I was reviewing uh, in the Times, nor would I look at a script in advance. Um, I could always send for a script after I, you know, seen seen something I was reviewing. I, I really, really felt it was important to have the experience of actually seeing the show without knowing the production history, gossip, uh, uh, what audiences were saying uh, during previews, the out-of-town reviews. I was really, I, I felt that very strongly. I felt I wanted to recreate what I had as a child, which was to come in uh, not knowing what was going to happen when the curtain come up and see, came up, went up and seeing something fresh. Mm. And I feel... You know, the the only time, you know, if somebody died or something in the, in in previews that was replaced, you'd you'd mention it. But you know, even when I was reviewing Forty Second Street, where um, famously Merrick announced during the curtain call on opening night the performance I attended uh, that the Garrett Champion had died, the director and choreographer of the show. I originally didn't put it in my review. I felt it was irrelevant to considering the show, to which I had a very mixed reaction. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and right. Yeah. and then Arthur Gell, the managing editor of the paper, said you really kind of have to put it in because it's a front page news story. You have to acknowledge that it happened. Yeah. And so I did at the very yeah. last minute. But that's how strongly I felt about it. And and and. Um, uh, in part because I felt that shouldn't influence one's judgment, which is what Merrick, Merrick withheld, as we'd later learn, withheld the, the news of Champion, who had died a day or two, two earlier, precisely to influence the critics. And I never wanted to be part of that game. And I feel now, 
too too many reviews I read where where critics are reacting to the scuttlebutt, reacting what they heard about in previews, and that's oh that way lies madness. Madness. The, the classic example when I was reviewing was Sunday in the Park with George. Mm. It was it was mm. I you, you couldn't help but. It was postponed two or three times, the opening, as they were working on it, which meant obviously things weren't going well because the date kept changing. Right. Uh, but I didn't. But I right. hadn't seen a workshop. I didn't know anything about it uh, beyond uh, that it was about George Seurat. And um, when I went to see it, usually when critics go to a press performance, it's completely... Um, uh, uh, full of sycophants and friends and investors and family over responding to even, you know, everything gets a huge standing ovation and, and is, is wonderful because they'd had to postpone the opening so many times. They didn't, they weren't able to, one of the critics nights that one I attended fell into what had been previously sold theater party. So they didn't have that kind of control over the house and the audience um, didn't like it, and in fact, there were lots of walkouts. Um, and I, mm. I love the show. I was very moved by it, and I, I didn't let that influence me any more than I would have let all the gossip I'd learned after it open about what was going on in previews influence me. But I'm telling you, a lot of critics who panned it, and most did, uh, including Variety, for instance, uh, had heard all the gossip, had been influenced by apparently negative response in previews and and i think it, i the show's become a classic thing since and i think what the fact that everyone was absorbing all the scuttlebutt and the and whatever was messed up in the show in previews um it colored the reaction to the show they wanted to be uh, you know sort of where the news was rather than judging the show on its own merits and the critic is is not a pollster that's why i also feel Never report audience response because whatever it is, good, bad, or indifferent, it's going to be bogus mm. uh, in terms mm. of what the show is. Um, when you were writing a review, did you have a certain structure that you would follow in the composition of the review? N- not really. I mean, I, th- I, th- I think anyone would say you, or most critics who take it seriously would say, writing pieces. You probably want to lead with the strength of the production, mm. but even if it's not great, not a great show. You want to start by t- talking about what's good, uh, uh, and let's face it, most things you review are mixed. They're not great or terrible. Uh, but on the other hand, if something is really great or really awful, you probably begin with a feeling and an overall picture expressing that emotion. Um, one, of, uh, one of the things we like to do on our show is celebrate artists that are no longer with us. And um, one of them you knew very well. And I would love to hear some memories or thoughts about Wendy Wasserstein, Frank. Well, Wendy, Wendy was someone that I loved. I met her before I was a drama critic, and I never reviewed her. Right. Um, yeah. She was right. one of two friends that I had that were off. I, I signed other critics to right. review. And... and um, she, uh, what can I say? She was one of my best friends. She was someone who often went with me to see plays. She went with me to, and never asked what the show was. She's the one I saw <laughs> murders with. Um, Good friend, yeah. Uh, uh, and she was a funny, warm uh, person, as, or, or public 
persona was pretty much who she was. Lovely, generous, generous to people, um, uh, in, you, young people coming up in the theater, generous to her colleagues, devoted to the theater. How'd you get to know her in the first place? I think, I'm pretty sure I met her, I've often wondered that, I, I, I'm pretty sure I met her through Andre Bishop. Just, just to explain, Andre was someone I went to Harvard with. He was a, a, not a close friend, but but an acquaintance. Um, it was a year ahead of me and was uh, peripherally involved uh, in, in the Harvard Theater right. and would grow up to be a producer, of course, now is for some years run Lincoln Center. Right. But mm-hmm. at the very beginning of his career, he ran Playwrights Horizons. Right. And uh, Wendy's, one of Wendy's first plays, not her first, but an early play, was produced there, and I and I, I think it was even before I was a drama critic. And I went to the opening night. I think because Andre must have invited me, and I think that's how I met her. Huh. And um, but I'm not quite sure. But we had other. Also, she wrote sometimes with Christopher Durang, who had also been at Harvard with me, whom I I didn't know well. But but it's just it's, it's something in the late '70s. It's just sort of a, a, a bit foggy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know she you know it's been a number of years now since her tragic death um but she you know i still very i still very much feel very much surrounded by her aura and for one thing she had she had nephews um and a niece her brother bruce's children who were contemporaneous with mike kids and went to school with them and I would see them through that context uh, uh, as well and one of them Ben Wasserstein is actually an executive at HBO who a couple years ago started being working on on Veep from the HBO side and her her last assistant uh, as it happened her last assistant at the time of her death who literally was as much caregiver as assistant right up until her last opening, a play called Third, at the yeah, Mitchie yeah. New House, which was the last time I saw it was the opening of that play, saw her alive. Mm. Um, her assistant um, was a young guy just out of Yale named Jeremy Strong, who was actually a star, uh, by coincidence, but a star of, um, became an actor, yeah. and a star of uh, Succession, a television show I produced. Yeah. Yes. A, a brilliant young actor. Wow. And I hadn't seen him until we cast him, and at first I wasn't even sure it was the same person. Really? I remembered him mainly as this kid, Jeremy, not with a last name. Yeah. And, and so anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, she's very much around, around me. And actually her niece, Pam Wasserstein is the, is the CEO of New York magazine. So, <laughs> all right. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Rich. Thank you. Keep it in that circle. That's marvelous. What was the most surreal experience that you had while being a critic at the New York Times? It seems like a very heady job to have. It is and it isn't. It is work. You know, it it is work under deadline pressure. And a lot of it can be very, you know, it was exhausting. Particularly if you're doing, it's a high of the season, doing four shows a week and, you know, writing on deadline not the night of anymore by the time I did it, but still within 24 hours and then going to the next play. I would say, I would say, the most surreal, you know, were were weird things that just happened. One was, of course, 
the opening of 42nd Street where really no one saw it coming that Merrick was going to announce Coward Champion's death right. mm-hmm. on opening night. Um, I've seen... Uh, 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 there was a very unsuccessful play. I think it ran one night maybe called T-Neck Tansy. Yes. Um, that, yeah. that, that uh, I'll never forget the critics' performance I was at because Andy Kaufman, the comic played a kind a kind of uh, boxing promoter and it was an environmental setting on Broadway when you arrived he was like roaming the the audience and making wisecracks and one of my older colleagues the drama critic colleagues um, having no idea who Andy Kaufman was or that he was a comic provocateur practically got into a fist fight with him before the show started <laughs> That was wow. <laughs> things like that. You can't tre- treasure. You'd see critics arrive drunk. Oh. Uh, you'd see people fall asleep. Oh my god! Uh, you know, so all those kinds of things. Made, but often it was not that romantic. You know, um, but people should understand. In my day and now, you don't go on opening nights, and so it is. It's not some Klieg like exciting experience. 42nd Street was an exception because Merrick canceled all the previews to force the critics to go opening night, but that was a very rare exception. Um, And so it's, you know, it's, it's, it is a job, an enjoyable job at its best, but it is, um, you know, it's, it's, but but it's, it's a, it's a job like any other in a way. It's just, it's a, it's a wonderful job if you, if you love the theater, but it is surreal, not not that often, you know, and even, you know, the biggest, even the biggest failures, Moose, Moose Murders was an exception because <laughs> literally someone covered in vomit was sitting in front of me and Wendy when I was reviewing it and we had to move our seats. What? But even that, I wouldn't call that surreal, I would just call that bizarre. Tragic, <laughs> yeah, totally. Tragic and bizarre. Oh my goodness. Yeah, but otherwise, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's work and, yeah. I've recently been spending a fair amount of time in London on succession, going back and forth a bit um, in pre-production on it. And as I walk through the West End, what I remember so vividly is in the days before you could file electronically, going over to London and seeing, you know, 10 plays in seven days, Mm. filing reviews of them, sometimes having to dictate those reviews and phone to New York, to the Times in New York, Mm -hmm. and weird hours from phone booths. It was hard. It was hard work. (laughs) Tremendous. It's nice to be a little bit more carefree and not have to see everything or write about it, you know? Yeah, true. You know, you do so many things outside of the theater world now. You've got your, you know, working in a lot of television with Veep, and you've uh, the amazing political essays you do for New York Magazine, which I love. But how, how has being this sort of what we call quote unquote theater nut has that helped or informed your career now that it's not in musical Absolutely. theater? Absolutely. And how? Absolutely. When people, when I, yes, I mean, it, first of all, it informed my career as a political journalist because. I think that growing up in Washington, uh, and I grew up in the city of Washington, um, beginning at around age nine, we moved from the Maryland suburbs into the city. Um, I was, and I went to public schools in DC. I was very, as I was falling in love with the theater, I was extremely conscious 
of the fact that there was an onstage and backstage to Washington, that there were all these glamorous sets, the Capitol, the White House, huh. uh, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court, the National Archives, that were, where tour buses of kids my age came and saw them, but they didn't see the other Washington that I saw uh, living there as a, as a native, which was a, a, a segregated city with with extremes of poverty, with people living in alleys um, that would explode right after I graduated high school, you know, in the riots of 1968. Mm. And so I was very conscious, it sort of informed my idea of politics, which was, is that whatever's happening um, in front of you is probably not what's actually happening. Mm. And the one book I wrote about politics, the greatest story ever sold, was about essentially how the Bush administration used showmanship and PR and, and lying to sell the war in Iraq uh, as a kind of show. And it's very much, and meanwhile, what was really going on, no weapons of mass destruction, right. no connection between Saddam Hussein and, and 9-11 was in the shadows. And, uh, and indeed, only after I wrote the book did I realize it was almost structured like uh, a Broadway musical, and that the first act, the first part of that book ends with Bush uh, miss, mission accomplished uh, uh, spectacle, yep. you know, on yeah. the aircraft carrier. carrier. Yep. And the and the part two of the book opens with that sort of quiet number. But wait a minute, where are the weapons of mass destruction? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. In ter- in terms of actual practical ability both to reviewing and then and then to being a producer in television i learned everything uh from my days as a ticket taker in washington i had an education you could not get today because today shows particularly in the commercial theater um they're heavier physically they don't try out in this way changes cannot be put in quickly um uh over a short period of time, visibly in front of an audience. Whereas what I could see was almost every two or three weeks, because that's how long the runs would be, a show would come in, I could go repeatedly for free, so, you know, and stand in the back, as I did. Uh, to this day, I sort of almost prefer standing in the back of a <laughs> proscenium house to yeah. watch a show. Um, and I would see the show come in and then I'd see people work on it and I'd see changes go in every other night. And it was absolutely uh, uh, an incredible education because you'd see a classic example was um, the odd couple. The odd couple opened in Washington. It was the last stop before New York. It got great reviews and Washington was an immediate hit. Um, but I saw, I didn't know them, but I saw Neil Simon and Mike Nichols come in every night and continue to work on the show. And you know, they kept changing things. They kept, at one point, they, kept, they never could figure out what to do with the Pigeon Sisters in the second act. At one point, uh, they were not in the second act. By the time it was ending in Washington, they figured out the ending of the play where Felix would go and move in with them. Mm-hmm. But that literally was thrown in the last night. I saw uh, Hello, Dolly, which also was an immediate hit in Washington. I saw American Champion work on it and and take a number out that was a Davy Burns um, 
production number, uh, a penny in my pocket. Yep. Basically turned up in another context, pointlessly in my view, in the new revival, and replace it the last weekend with before the parade passes by when they didn't even have any costumes or sets built for it yet. I saw Jerry Robbins with Fiddler constantly tweak a show that also, again, was very strong and didn't you didn't think it needed fixing. It was it. Audiences loved it. The Washington critics loved it. But he put in Anna Tefka uh, mm. Mm. in Washington in place of a much a, a much lesser song. He took one song away from one character who couldn't sing it and gave it to an actor who could, even if it was nonsensical. <laughs> uh, uh, to, to the song that now I have everything was originally sung by uh, uh, Model. It was given to Bert Convy, who could sing it as Perchick, and they got another. They wrote Miracle of Miracles for. Uh, that Austin Pendleton could sing as as, as model. They uh, and and Robbins also called in the cast every non matinee day to try to create a dance for the second act and never did. There's Whoa. no choreography except for that little piece of havala. Yeah. Uh, then I saw things like uh, uh, Mr. President, which was, uh, this was before I was a ticket taker, but I went to see it repeatedly. It was a huge sell out before it opened and Kennedy went to the opening in Washington yeah. it was the cut return of Irving Berlin for the first time in a decade after uh, uh, Call Me Madam and it was Josh Logan and Lindsay and Krauss and it was inert and even as an 11 or 12 year old um, I could see that but I watched these brilliant theater people come in every night and move things around and yeah. rewrite and try to change it to no avail yeah. so all of that I am channeled in without question into my work, you know, uh, in television, Fantastic. you know, and trying to look at, you know, part of a producer's role is to look at what, look at scripts, look at scenes, look right. at cuts, what's working, what isn't working, what can you contribute to this discussion that might make it better, what, you know, what, what can't be improved, what could be improved, what casting went astray, uh, all of that. Yeah. Um, I learned it all there. I learned it all as a teenager, basically. That's amazing. Yeah. Frank, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. And on a personal Delighted note... Delighted to do it. Th thanks again for your patience with me. And um, uh, thanks for doing this. And I look forward not to hearing myself, but to hearing... Um, hearing others and very quickly on a personal note i must say that um i was living in los angeles and i was in high school when ghost light came out and it really changed my life um oh, that's so kind of you yeah well no it's it's so kind of you and um now that i teach i make it required reading for my freshman class i just want you to know thank your stories you. are continuing thank you and thank, thank you thank you very much good luck to you and thanks for doing this thank you frank take care you too Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. 
Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.